You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Katherine Gorman. Today, we're bringing you our annual hosts of Talking Machines conversation, where we get a chance to sit down with Ryan and Neil and talk with them about what they've been excited about lately. And we recorded this episode at NIPS 2017, early in the conference, shortly after Ali Rahimi delivered his lecture in receiving the Test of Time Award for the paper Random Features for Large-Scale Kernel Machines that he wrote with Ben Recht. And we'll have a video of that lecture up at our website at thetalkingmachines.com. And if you haven't seen it or you didn't get to see the lecture in person, it might be worth it to pause the episode right here, watch it, and come back to the conversation. So, so let's pick up there with Ryan and Neil and talking about the test of time lecture at NIPS 2017. I think these kinds of stories about how papers come into existence, how ideas come into existence, how people collaborate and how they do their work, I think these are always really valuable, right? Because agree, they, yeah. they help um, particularly younger people understand that the that the research process is not a magical thing um, and it helps humanize the people who do this, do this, this work. I think it's really, uh, I thought that was great. Um, and I also thought that, I think that some of the discussion on social media about, um, about his talk kind of attacked a straw man version of that talk. Hmm. Um, I was thinking about that and the term alchemy is, I love, I love the idea of alchemy. I think for some people it's different. For some people you say alchemy and it's really insulting. Well, it sounds like and, pseudoscience. Uh, right? And other people yeah. it's like, oh, it was kind of a misguided thing, but they did an incredible, before, you know, before they worked out that that couldn't work, they did an incredible, like Newton was an alchemist. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, they were all, they discovered all these things through alchemy. Alchemy was proto-science. Yeah, proto-science. That's a great way of putting it. Not, right. It's not pseudoscience, proto-science. And, and we should we should say that in the talk in that where Ben Recht was awarded the Test of Time Award for his paper that we've talked about, um, Ali Rahimi, right, who yeah. was delivering this talk, said machine learning is now alchemy, right? That's yeah. the quote that we're talking about. Which, but, you know, I was thinking about it. We've hinted at this Sorry, in previous talks. Sorry, yeah, the talking. listeners won't have heard the talk. You should go, everyone should go listen. Everyone should go listen to the talk. It's on, it's on it's YouTube. Online. Yes. And I was thinking we've hinted at some of these issues around talking machines. Mm. I mean, I, the, the pro, one of my questions for me is, well, sure, but, but what do we actually do about it? You know, mm. so it's not like that we can sort of suddenly police it and have like the machine learning police if 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 we did then we would put ryan in charge the yeah, superintendent of definitely. the machine learning police uh, actually you would be like a texas ranger the machine yeah, learning sheriff alone yeah. sort of with the yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm assuming you already have the hat i do actually so policing um, it apart from great, by ryan i need a great vest though I'm yeah, like, yes. and now i'm liking the image of machine learning as the wild west i actually prefer that in many respects, I prefer the image of machine learning as a sort of um, pioneering in an area where you've, you've got to make up a lot of stuff on the fly. You're just trying to, um, but then you, you would be successful, you know, to not be left with a ghost town or something else. There has to be a bit more substantial stuff. And I sort of see that the, the substantial stuff is, well, what do you do to sort of deal with this? You're not going to um, like all these people trying these things you're not going to be able to stop them you're not going to be able to sort of license it so mm. i think the question is how how do we prevent that having a negative effect yeah it, you know i think it might be helpful to actually kind of also just talk through kind of what maybe to try to paraphrase a little bit of what what uh ali rahimi mm -hmm. sort of talked about yeah, this talk and kind of like what this was about and um and i think he was really in my view he was calling for the scientific method to be applied to to machine learning and deep learning in particular, which is something that I feel like I, I sort of talk about a lot. I will say also that, that like 
you know, every now and then you see somebody give a talk and you think, man, I wish I had given that talk. And mm. this is definitely one of those. I just thought, wow, this is exact. This is just what, a, you know, what an amazing sort of message. Um, but I think it boils down when he used the word rigor. I think what he really meant was let's, let's make sure that we're doing science. And rigor here doesn't mean, I think, I think some people took his use of the word rigor to mean theoretical results. But really, I think what he meant was rigorous investigation, right? Well, let's study things. Let's apply reductionist ideas. Let's go to the simplest situation where, that we can understand and then grow from there rather than jumping. And that's actually what the REC paper uh, was, the, was the press conference was about is actually empirical analysis of SGD versus Adam. That's not a theoretical thing. You just take a simpler model, you do some empirical analysis. Uh, and that is the process of science. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and to that end, he, he gave an example that I thought was, was quite inspirational and very simple and, and revealed already, you know, kind of instantaneously revealed some of the challenges in this, uh, uh, of doing this kind of science. So his point, I think, was kind of like, here's like the simplest possible deep network in a sense. Here's the simplest possible MLP. Doesn't have a ReLU or a sigmoid or whatever your favorite nonlinearity is. Doesn't have multiple layers. Doesn't do anything fancy at all. Uh, doesn't even have, you know, it doesn't even have like a fancy loss. It just has, you know, this like least squares loss and um, and SGD fails. Hmm. So I think that the... the the point where Jan was making on Facebook about it, which I think is also an interesting one, is um, what, how, how does one translate that to something in practice? You know, the, and, and what Jan likes to say is, oh, well, that told everyone that, you know, you couldn't have uh, perpetual motion machines and uh, made sure it didn't do that work. But in some sense, it defined the limits of what was possible, which I think is quite a fair point. You know, that if a theory to be useful, it has to guide your your practice in some way yeah i guess i don't I'm, i guess i'm not totally convinced that we learn that much about limits from purely empirical exploration right like we get hints about them but it happens all the time no meaning like that the, the, the normally theory is the way we understand those limits and oh, where not to try so i think that was jan's point which i sort of find in i mean I think that the, the the problem for me is you can perhaps have to do a lot of theory before you come up with something that sort of actually says people don't try X. You know, that's kind of the ideal outcome from a lot of this work. You know, you know, don't do Y with Z combined because we just know it's never going to work for theoretical reasons. But that's actually quite a difficult thing to get to. You often have to do a lot of theory before you get such a simple sort of summary rule. Yeah, um, but I, but I, I, again, I don't think the use of rigor here is is entirely about theory i i totally agree that theory mm -hmm. is valuable and it's a component of that but it also means just reductionist empirical investigation like i i feel like the i feel like our empirical um evaluations in machine learning are like right now consist not not always but generally often consist of just trying to put numbers on a scoreboard mm. and both the authors and the reviewers often try to always view everything through this sort of uh, poorly defined and not very interesting idea of state of the art on a small number of, of visual object recognition data sets. And, uh, and that's, not, that's not good empiricism. There are people who are implementing these things that don't worry about this stuff. And, and in some sense, you're kind of saying that as well, that at one level this is going on, but at another level, there's a lot of people doing stuff that aren't worrying about these things. Well, and, and I think fitting into the other thing, the question is what kind of work gets press releases? Careful investigations of fairness and ways that like linear regression doesn't 
doesn't necessarily always have the weights that are that we'd like our society to. Re- you can write your own press release for that. Yeah, right? you can definitely write a press release for that. <laughs> we did write a press release. We did write. We did write a press release. We did write a press release for careful investigations of fairness. We should talk about other stuff in the conference. We should totally that talk wasn't about other the stuff. only thing that happened. <laughs> As I said, I thought Kate Crawford's talk was. Uh, I actually didn't. You didn't. You didn't uh, make it. Well, she was such a professional. Uh, I, I'm going to go back and watch the video. Yeah, but the, the, it was a sort of. Um, I mean, she gave great examples of the the different types of bias, how it can manifest. Uh, it's. I think one thing that's exciting is when you see the social scientists who've really gained a deeper understanding of the way machine learning's worked. I mean, she's a Microsoft research, mm-hmm. right? And so she's like, there's people like Hannah Wallach around her, and. and Jen Waltman Vaughan and you know it's I th- I find that very so we, we've talked about some of the challenges but I find that very exciting there's going to be the symposium on interpretability later on there's a lot going on which are outreach to these different fields and I think that there's an increasing understanding from social scientists lawyers philosophers about some subset of that community absolutely I, I'll, and I have to say like many times I talk to grad students who are trying to get into the field and uh, they often talk about how this is the thing that they want to work on, hmm. well, like quite a lot. Hmm. The sort of fairness and interpretability yep. side. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's a great sign. I, I think it's a great sign because it also, it, it brings up so many issues about, it, it makes you more thoughtful about how you're, you're deploying in, in practice as well, which I think is critical. Um, you know, there's this challenge that, that uh, people are doing things that affect people's lives. Um, um, we don't fully, I mean, understand uh, um, all that we understand kind of what we're deploying, but we don't necessarily understand the longer term societal effects. But we should be thinking carefully. We, we hope that the practitioners are thinking carefully about what they're doing. Um, and uh, I think we get the sense that that is going on as well, uh, certainly from this year's NIPS. So at least from my perspective, the conversation around interpretability has, has um, really spiked in the last year. Usually, annually, there's kind of a thing that people are really excited about, but interpretability seems to be one of the fundamental questions that we really need to keep talking about it. How how do you think we keep this conversation going? Or is it going to wane with like next year's really cool model? I think it's partially being driven uh, probably by regulation as well. So people mm. mentioned the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. I'm sure I've already said this. I think it should just be called good data practice rules. And then people would View it, you know, like because some of the stuff that's in there, you kind of think if you view it another way, if you say, Oh, this isn't a lawyer telling me to do this stuff, if you just think, Oh, you know, that would be useful if I could explain why my algorithm has made this decision under these circumstances, that seems like something you would want your system to do. It's almost like, But if a lawyer tells me to do it, then no, then I mustn't have to do it. <laughs> and I know that there's conditions, it is difficult, there's conditions under which it's challenging, there's some questions of interpretability, but. I think that that's one reason that it will continue to drive. And I don't think it's just the sort of phenomenological thing of the year. I think this is a field where people have been working on this for a number of years, mm-hmm. that it's just sort of rising to the surface, that there's a good, solid underpinnings there. Um, and a lot of people have been talking about it. I don't know what you were, I think. Yeah, I, I guess it's it's something that I think is a little bit, um, still a little hard to formalize, right? And, and there's always this tension between... Um, you know, I, I think it, there's always a tension in practice between models that are sort of somehow easier to interpret versus models that actually are more performant. I think that that's something that always comes up, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, in medicine or something, mm. right? Would you rather have a more accurate 
cancer diagnosis or uh, or one that is uh, that is easier to understand. And you know, I, I think there's like, it's it's a little hard to reason about that. I think, um, and so I don't think we're so so I think you know there's still a lot of work to do just trying to understand what it is exactly that we ask of these of these tools. Well, one approach is to actually to try and do both. So. I mean, it's funny, this case, you were also uh, mentoring at Wimmel. Uh, I was on one of the mentoring tables at Wimmel. And this question came up. I was on the Bayesian statistics, which Bayesian methods, which is a weird one because now you get people who are interested in, say, Bayesian neural networks and people who are actively interested in medical applications. And it almost feels like, well, the reason we're doing probability in these two cases is kind of different. But I think, you know, and actually the, the two cases you sort of might be referring to, one is, oh, I've got some predictive model um, that uh, I've, I've integrated out all the parameters and they're not necessarily interpretable and it's making a good prediction alongside I might have some logistic regression form that I'm trying to interpret what those parameters are but it feels to me a little bit uh, it's a false dichotomy I mean we can we can use and I, I like Carlos Gestrin's work in this way where you're sort of trying to put interpretable models on on top of the more predictive one to try and extract that and maybe we can get the best of both worlds that way that seems like a good way to go yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think there's, uh, the way I think of what you just said is that there are uh, situations where you create a model with the intention of that model being interpretable. Um, classic examples of this would be people interpreting the weights from uh, a regression in a genome-wide association study, right, to try to identify yeah. uh, identify effects. And then there's uh, this other view, which is I'm going to train the best model I can. And build a suite of tools to interrogate that model post hoc, yeah. to ask it somehow what it knows about the world, right? And uh, I think these are two sort of complementary, complementary sort of approaches to this. And, and you know, one way I think about it sometimes is like statistics itself was invented to try and understand very complex systems, society where we didn't have good models. And they build simpler models to sort of sit on top of the data and, you know, they, they know that that's not that everything's not working as linear regression. They're carefully constructing models that give some interpretability. But, but I am a little bit worried about the idea that we should err towards more interpretable models uh, for the whole prediction, because I feel then we're, we're in danger of using simplistic models, which will probably, um, I mean, they, they will discriminate because they'll be like uh, classification models or something, but... Because if we think of the bias variance dilemma, they're going to be on the bias side and they will be consistently making errors about certain subsections of the population um, because they're simpler than they could be uh, in order to get the interpretability. So that also seems like a potential trap to fall into, to not do the best prediction you can and try to do the post-facto uh, interpretation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question, which is that does interpretability... I mean, I, I think we feel like interpretability is somehow exactly living along this bias variance trade-off with models, but that's not something that I've seen formalized. I, I, I yeah, think it's something really we, I think it's something yeah. we kind of believe, right? We intuit, yeah. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Shira. He's a lecturer in the Department of Electrical and Electronic Engineering at Nidan Kimathi University in Nyeri, Kenya. And we got a chance to talk with him at Data Science Africa. And we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests on Talking Machines. How did you get where you are? Uh, well, I, 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 went, I was born in Kenya, 
in Nairobi. So that's, you know, that's where I spent the first uh, maybe 23 years of my life in, in, in Nairobi, in Kenya. Uh, I went to school there, primary, you know, secondary, uh, ended up at uh, University of Nairobi, which at one point was actually a, a, a constituent college of uh, the University of London. Uh, the beginning. So, I, wasn't whether, your dad a professor at University of Nairobi? Yeah, eventually, he was a professor of uh, biochemistry. My dad, actually, that's that's probably the real beginning. You know, my dad was instrumental. I grew up with all these books in in the house, and anyway, that's a story for another day. <laughs> I, I went to the University of Nairobi, studied engineering for five years between 2002 to 2007. I think halfway through doing electrical engineering, I. I I always felt at some point I wish I had done something like physics, which was very more, more fundamental. And I, I, I felt also a bit shortchanged by the way things, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but you know, I, I, I yearned for, you know, let me, let me go where things uh, appear to be really happening, which is in my view, I thought at that point when I was really young, I thought, okay, things are really happening in technology in America. Let me try get study. In America, so I finished my my bachelor's, and I applied to a couple of programs for PhD directly. I didn't, you know, I I, I don't even know why I did that. So people were asking me, "Oh, you, you're not going to do a master's, or you're not, you know, there's this there's this trajectory that's supposed to be followed." So I I, I got into some PhD program at Drexel in Philadelphia. I was doing still electrical engineering, signal processing. Uh, when well, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, mm. it's not easy to go from African undergraduate university direct into a PhD, particularly without a master's. Yeah, I'd, but I didn't know it was hard. <laughs> so I, 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 luckily, you know, it was really like a scholarship. You know, you, you have this research assistantship, tutorial, uh, teaching assistantship. Mm, I was under uh, John Walsh. I think he's still there still doing a lot of information theory. So I was thrown in some really deep end uh, with all this nice math, which I, I was, you know, I, I was happy to do. It was, it, was, it was a good time. I mean, really interesting academically. It was, you know, PhDs are always tough. So I think when I left, I, that's in Philly. When I left Philly, I don't think I've been back. There's always that trauma, I think, of the location you do your PhD. At least for me, it, was, it, it felt that way. Um, so luckily, the strange thing, man, I, when I was at the end, I still sort of still wanted to be an academic, so I was looking for postdocs, and uh, I, was, I was going through, I mean, and then I, I don't know how I saw the, at Neil's lab in Sheffield uh, with, with Magnus, they, had, they, wanted a, they wanted a postdoc, and uh, again, I think I, I always have this feeling of always being dis not maybe dissatisfied is a strong word, but always yearning for more. So with my bachelor's, I was like, no, I need to go to America. Then the trajectory started heading homewards. You know, now I started saying, let me let me look. What can I actually do back at home? And I, I saw that the big labs were really into biological research, and and I really really wanted to to be in it. And, and then I was like, okay, my background is computational. Ah, the computational biology is interesting. Let me. And then I landed in uh, the Penn's, Penn, you Penn's library. There was the book you guys did. Oh, yeah, learning in it from some computational systems. Yeah. 
I landed on that. I, I read it before we interviewed. I was yeah, this this area looks interesting. And uh, and actually, I interviewed and a, a few minutes, an hour or two later, I got the call. I was like, this is madness. <laughs> These guys want me to come. I, I didn't think I would get the job, to be honest, as a postdoc at the University you were speech. of Sheffield. The thing you haven't mentioned is you would move into speech. Yeah. Uh, you were doing a PhD in speech. Yeah, I, I was doing speech. And and I sort of felt like I was a bit insignificant in speech. So w- w- what could I be significant at? Maybe biology, maybe computational biology. So I ended up there. So I did that for two two years. And then even as I was in Sheffield, the first year was great. It was it was all great, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> but I at some point I really started feeling I need to I need to be home. I'm 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 working here. It's 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 all well and good, but it feels like I'm I'm working on work. That this not... wasn't just the weather. <laughs> <laughs> no, the weather in Sheffield was great. <laughs> you know, but it was actually much. It's the kind of town I like. You know, even where I work now in Nyeri is uh, is similar. Oh, yeah, I mean... It's nice and calm. It's we'll not... come to that. Nyeri is beautiful. Real eye-opener for me when we did the first Data Science Africa there. So Shira is the person... Uh, when he left, I said, we're going to do a workshop when you're settled. And so in, in some sense, that those words are the foundation of Data Science Africa. And, um, uh, of course, John Quinn is, you know, is the magician that sort of has all pulled all the strings to make it a successful workshop. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, your work. But... Um, that location, the, the eye-opener for me was, um, that's where the Mau Mau Rebellion was, and your university is named after one of the yeah. leaders. Of, Didan Kimati was a field marshal in the Mau Mau Rebellion. And these are horrible times. I mean, the British have a terrible history in that region. I mean, your mom was uh, living in a concentration camp when... Uh, yeah, you could, you could call it that. Just it, There were these uh, internment villages. I yeah, think. and this is post-Second yeah. World War, so yeah. it's kind of pretty horrific yeah. what it was is, going it, it on. It is, it is. And when I look at her trajectory, it's, it's quite interesting that you can talk to somebody who was in, in one of these... You know, people were dispossessed of all they had, all their land, and put into this... Uh, internment camps and then uh, you know they I guess I don't know whether they were to stay there forever but you know when when you're free now I felt let me tell you the, the truth when I was going back home I really felt like I, I, I can't I can't be away from home and uh, not and that that's also one of the reasons I went to Dead and Kimathi University because I was like these people did made such a huge huge sacrifice so that I could be you know, an upright standing man, you know, so that when I'm standing and I'm, I'm walking, I'm like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a man, <laughs> which, I mean, that's, I mean, a lot of people may not be able to identify with that statement, but it's, it's I mean, people of color in America will identify with that, and people in oppressed minorities will identify with that statement. I, I noticed that, I think when I was in America, I noticed that I, I was able to, I have this rich thing which is propping me back and I needed to give back. Yeah, and I think that, the, the, I mean, the other thing, the university set in the grounds of an old coffee plantation. Uh, so it was a colonist's location, but now it's this university, it's beautiful setting. I mean, you can see why they were fighting over that land. It's yeah. just it's beautiful. Because it's the altitude, the temperatures, yeah. just very similar to Russia. Mm. I mean, the temperature's very nice most of the year round. Um, the university has a conservancy on site. Actually, you heard a little bit about uh, your work in the conservancy, Shira. My PhD work was in speech, uh, just signal processing 
approximate Bayesian inference in uh, speech recog uh, speaker recognition, actually. So just speech processing. But I moved into comp bio, where I was learning. I went really, I think, more into the machine learning and you know inference of uh, of transcription, which again was interesting. But I felt I needed to come closer to the people, closer to the ground, various areas. I I, I tried to, as I said, bring it to the ground. I, I was like, yeah, environmental conservation is interesting. Uh, agriculture is of course key. So I can't say I found my footing yet. I'm still, you know, groping in the dark there for an, a research angle that I can actually follow. But uh, I've been doing work in uh, ecosystem monitoring at our conservancy. So we have this nice conservancy Neil has visited. You, you, you could be working on your computer in your office one second, the next minute, I mean, not minute really, but in, within like 30 minutes, you're working in the conservancy counting birds, which is what I do. With, uh, well, in Data Science Africa, we had Mushiri take us around. Yeah. Before the morning session, we had a dawn walk in the conservancy. Right, at 6 a.m. Uh, yeah, at 6 a.m. Seeing um, zebras, colobus monkeys. Colobus monkeys. What up, bucks? And for some reason, a llama. Yeah, there's a llama. The llama. The, well, the llama <laughs> is there. Uh, well, I don't know why it's there, but it's uh, it's not... Actually, it's not wild, huh? It's no. domestic. Yeah, llama is a domestic, domestic animal. But... Um, You've been you've been doing work field work in the conservancy with the birds, right? Yeah, and the idea is you know to do automatic acoustic recognition of the bird species and then use that to infer uh, you know the state of ecosystem. So I have some work starting off there, but going into the Mount Kenya National Park, laying trans. Uh, I mean, you know, like monitoring acoustic pop uh, bird populations acoustically. I can't pinpoint exactly where it started, but I was I was sort of looking. It's like I have the I was walking around with this toolbox, and signal processing was in that toolbox. Machine learning was in that. You mean toolbox. like a mental toolbox? Yeah, a mental toolbox. The tools that you felt you could. Yeah, with. all these tools that I have, and and I think actually I can be I can I can now pinpoint where it started. It started at the first data science Africa school, because at that school I. I mean, Mushiri is a conservancy con coordinator, David Mushiri. And, uh, it's from the Kenya, it used to be in the Kenyan Wildlife Service that runs the parks, right? It used to be Mount Kenya. Uh, I think he was a naturalist at one of the, at one of the hotels there. Yeah. And then um, at DSA 2015, we really now interacted on a closer level, and I got to know him. And then I think from going into the conservancy, uh, I hadn't even been into that conservancy in the way I, we, we went around, you know, really. I think that's where the seed was planted, that, wait a minute, I have, I, I can, maybe, I can't pinpoint, I can't say exactly, but I think that's where it started. You started also, you were looking, also interested in looking at herbal medicine, I remember. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Mashiri's a bit of an expert on the, the herbal medicine plants, the local remedies. Yeah, I, I, when I, that was an idea that was born in, in, in because of my computational biology stuff, background. And uh, then I tried to, I, I was still, you know, coming with my old ideas, fitting them into you know, as opposed to now just being on the ground and then letting new ideas just come. Because, but the challenge here as well is building the research culture because you landed in um, Dedan Kamathi and so you'd been there by two years by then and, and within six months of landing, you were um, head of department. And, you know, in African universities, sometimes you get saddled with all this administrative stuff. So you, I, you, you wouldn't believe that I'm head of department. I mean, 
you know, I, 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 I come here and I'm like, I mean, what, 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 what sort of department gets headed by me? You know, <laughs> a very good one. So, so that, 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 that's where I was. And then I, I think I liked the intersection because I also work with an ornithologist called Peter Njoroge from the National Museums of Kenya. So what we do is we collect audio. Uh, I, I got uh, a, a sort of a grant from the Kenya Education Network that's headed by Meoli Kashoda. And he, he gave us a grant to do, uh, to look into how the Raspberry Pi could be used for education, for electrical engineering education. And then I had this device and I could plug a microphone in it and leave it in the bush. And uh, got audio, be able, and then take that audio, give it to Peter Njoroge at NMK, and he would tell me, okay, it has X number of species in it. And then use that data, I could, uh, you know, get some features, classify, you know, be able to tell it's X species, Y species. And then we settled on one species that was quite interesting, a ha the Hatlabs Turaku, that we wanted to, you know, monitor. And and because it's, it's, you know, it's an... It's, it's easy enough to identify acoustically and also its its range is being affected. You know, anecdotal evidence is saying that it's being pushed higher and higher up in altitude. So we, 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 we're still deploying sensors. So in other words, that project is, uh, we aim to, you know, really take it quite far, but right now it's baby steps. It's con co combining low cost electronics, a bit of citizen science and, uh, me trying to interfere, I mean, you know, like impose myself in another discipline now. I, I, I tried computational biology, so now I'm trying to invade on ethology, ecology. But the, I mean, it's not just because of that bird, is it? It's this idea of an indicator species, uh -huh. and the, which I think you expressed very well in the yeah, last, last data science. Yeah. I think there's a video of that. Um, yeah. the, by tracking these birds, they're easier to track because they... they they have song, and then you can actually try and understand uh, how the ecology is being affected on a broader scale. That's right, because birds are easy to to assess, and once you assess the birds, you can then try and infer what's going on with the with the ecosystem. And then now, even among the birds, there are certain birds like now the hatlabs turaku, whose range you can act. I mean, it's easy enough to monitor acoustically, and then you can make you know links to even climate change with range being contracted. I mean, and, and I think it's really interesting the pressures on land uh, in the area. Mm -hmm. um, as, as you know, you've kindly organized for me to go running with Rashid, who's one of the rangers from the Conservancy uh, on Mount Kenya. And we were talking about that. And he was asking me, well, what are the national parks in in UK? And I remember, yeah, I said, well, they kind of are, but they're preserving the bit that's outside the national park here. You know, in terms of, and, and that really struck me that, Mount Kenya is a national park. It's amazing land. There's people all around it right. who can't get the grazing land, who have their cattle uh, or their goats. You know, there's many sort of nomadic grazers in Kenya. Right. And the bit we preserve in our national park mm -hmm. is something that came after nomadic grazers. It's like old style hill farming or something like that. Right. Right. And the pressures in Kenya are mm -hmm. uh, to preserve something in a pristine environment, the thing that we don't even have in the West anymore. And... It's quite interesting because also uh, that's leading up to some other work I've been trying to get into, which is uh, looking into human-wildlife conflict. So you can actually, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on these pristine ecosystems. So that's uh, beginning the work with the birds. Uh, but also now, how do you, 
promote coexistence? How can you do, use technology to to ensure that people and humans, if I mean, can actually coexist? That's an interesting problem, which I'm interested in. You know, you could figure all sorts of deep, interesting machine learning algorithms, which could which could help you achieve that. I remember the the gamekeepers sort of saying, "Well." I, I, you know, shooting of poachers, that's not such a problem. Shooting wildlife, that's a big, big problem. And you realize the extent to which external pressures come in on Kenya to preserve this wildlife, that then affecting people locally yeah. and talking to various people about the extent to which ex poachers are ex um, wardens in the parks uh-huh. and very, very complex. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit more complex than I'm used to uh, in, in, you know, just dealing with you know algorithms and uh, things but it's it's i think it's one of the 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 challenges i put on myself as an engineer you or uh, as a scientist is how can you how can you now bring solutions to such big problems even if it's using machine learning how can machine learning now be you know impacting you know livelihoods at at that level so uh things in food security you know because it impacts food security and things like that climate change you get all this data um, you know, like uh, weather data, you can have all these sensor data, you can have, you know, uh, farmers with their history of what they've planted, how they've succeeded or failed, what sort of practices they've used. How can you get that into some form they can consume? I mean, the data that they can consume and actually make intelligent decisions that actually now make the difference between hunger and uh, and you know having 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 food because i mean right now in kenya we are staring at the second failed maize season you know and we, why are we still insisting on planting maize you know when we could have a hardier crop you know when last the last season actually we do some farming on the side and so i actually look at the clouds and i always ask myself shira you're supposed to be this machine learning guy why why are you, you know, just doing things without, you know, actually and actually using predictive, predictive methods? But then the problem is that maybe we, we don't get them into a way that can be easily consumed. So that and and then actually provide the alternatives, so that you know there's almost like with uh, Ralph's talk today about I mean in reference to Amazon with improving customer experience. So it's sort of like improving farmer experience. Why would they be able to choose to plant X as opposed to Y? So for example, a hardier crop like sorghum as opposed to maize. That's one thing, I mean, so you mentioned that and it, it was brought home to me again when he talked about that, that thing that um, Amazon pushes about customer obsession as with being that company, that's, that's kind of what data science Africa's tried to do, I think, identify the pain points of the people who you're trying to help. So in this case, yeah. you know, okay, there's, let's call everyone customers. I mean, yeah. I know we don't tend to do that so much, but, you know, um, but there's people's pain points, farmers, yeah. understanding whether they should plant maize, getting the right advice. Yeah, get it. it's like, you know, the work Ernest does with, uh, with uh, machine learning. That, that sort of, in fact, I, that, that's that's been the great yeah, who's, thing. Who's Alice? That's a... Ernest Mubaza. Ernest. Oh yeah, sorry, I thought you said Alice. Yeah. yeah, Ernest. Yeah. And uh, you know, work that actually impacts people. So that, 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 those are the deep questions I'm interested. You know, you, I, I I personally believe in having the bigger ideal of actually impacting people. So it's it's upon you to 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 make make it obvious that you actually are impacting people. 
Shira. It was so interesting to hear your conversation with him, Neil. I, I especially love to hear about the origins of data science Africa. It was so cool. You know, he was my postdoc. Um, and, uh, you know, he's quite a lot younger than me. Really? But I kind of feel he's wiser than me. He looks wiser <laughs> than me as well. And I, I, I often feel when I'm listening to him, I'm, I'm always <laughs> learning something. But he's doing some cool stuff. And actually, mm. uh, we're going to be back in uh, Nyeri um, in uh, this June for um, uh, Data Science Africa, where we'll be sort of, we're going to start doing teaching of teachers. So trying to train up people to do more. Oh, fantastic. Uh, more Data Science Africa's sort of expend. Uh, there's also going to be a, a one in Abuja. That's the plan in Nigeria. So, so trying to get it sustainable and scalable um, and uh, uh also supporting some of Shira's projects while we're out there. Really looking forward to it. Excellent. And eventually there will be the Data Science Africa, the nips of the Data Science Africas. Travel in Africa is very difficult. So to get access to people, we're, we're very mm. interested in making sure that there's regional meetings that people can travel to. And then you want a robust network of uh, places where people can collaborate with, within short traveling distance. But to do that, we need sort of many different uh, venues. But then I think that a nice idea would be eventually to sort of then have one main conference, the big coming together, which is focused on these challenges and sharing of information. I, I don't know when that will happen, but that, that would be just a wonderful thing to come to pass. But for the moment, it's just about trying to sort of scale up and get the teaching out there. And Shira has been a, a key part of that. Um, as I say, you know, it's sort of funny you see, you know, it's always interesting watching the students and postdocs get on. I just see this massive discontinuity in, in the postdoc that left me and then the responsibility that has now. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's it for us on Talking Machines this week. I'm Catherine Foreman. Tune in to the next episode.